Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is Metal Mike, and in this episode of the 80s Glam Metal Cast, we talk to a guitar legend from Keel and Cold Sweat, Mark Ferrari. We talk the Cold Sweat reunion, we revisit the breakout album 30 years later, and of course, we talk some Keel. Check it out. Welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How you doing tonight, Mark? I'm doing great, man. Really looking forward to uh, jumping on this Monsters of Rock cruise here in a few weeks. Uh, as you may know, uh, I am pulling uh, triple duty on uh, this cruise. Uh, keel is on the boat. Every boat should have a keel, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, keel, keel is on this boat. This will be our fifth time. Um on the Monsters of Rock cruise. Uh, the more exciting news for uh, fans that have been waiting for uh, for reunions, though, is the resurrection of Cold Sweat, which will be our first show since 1990 together. <laughs> so if you can believe that, man, it's been 30 years since uh, uh played with the Cold Sweat guys. That We haven't been in the same room since 1991 to give you... Uh, a sense as to how monumentous this occasion is going to be. And uh, on top of that, I'm also doing a uh, a KISS set with uh, Anthony and Chris from from Cold Sweat and uh, Jamie St. James from uh, Black and Blue. So uh, we have a a KISS set that we're doing, and the band is called Cold Gin. So we got Cold Sweat and Cold Gin, uh, (laughs) both on the boat. So uh, really looking forward to it. Um, should should be a, an amazing cruise. So how did the Cold Sweat reunion come together? Well, we've had truthfully we, we've had offers to go on the cruise before, uh, but I was the stick in the mud. I was really busy with uh, work related stuff and uh, raising a raising a child, and uh, I had a lot on my plate uh, with everything going on. I just didn't have the bandwidth. Um, to, to do it. And, um, you know, with the passage of time also, you know, certain, uh, uh, certain wounds are healed. And, uh, you know, I just got a little, uh, uh, a little reminiscent about, you know, about, about the past. And also we re- we released a cold sweat album last year. Uh, so the combination of all these things that, uh, kind of, uh, softened me up to, to do this. And, um, uh, now I do have more bandwidth to devote to doing this. Matter of fact, tomorrow I'm, I'm going to be rehearsing with our other guitar player, Eric Gammons, who lives here in Southern California too. And so, you know, we're, we're we have to scrape off 30 years of rust in a very short period of time. <laughs> Put it that way. Will you guys do any more shows beyond the cruise? Well, we're you know, we actually got offered to play the M3 Festival this year. But uh, we just couldn't we couldn't get the uh, we couldn't get the dollars out of the, those guys necessary for us to do it. Uh, unfortunately, with guys living in different parts of the country, 
uh, it takes X amount of dollars just for, for a band like that to walk out the door, you know, with airplane flights and hotels and everything else. And uh, so we just we just couldn't make it work. We 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 are being submitted for some other festivals this summer, so we'll see. Uh, um, I'm I'm open to it. So let's talk about Breakout. I mean, what a great album! I mean, you guys got killer playing, awesome vocals, great songs. What do you what do you want to say about that album? Well, I still think that it stands the test of time. I'll tell you that. You know, listening to it again after all these years, um, I still think that it really held its own against anybody else that was out there in that period of time, and I'm talking the big boys, too. Uh, I think there was a sticker on that album that MCA put on that said, all killer, no filler. <laughs> uh, and I guess I'll have to agree with that. You know, we, uh, we really worked hard in all aspects of the band, in the writing process, the arrangement process, uh, the recording process with our, our uh, producer, Kevin Beamish. Um, and I really think that you know I, I really think that the uh, the results uh, are on the uh, uh, on the vinyl or on the CD for everybody to hear. Um, and listening back to it today, um, I, I really still get a kick out of hearing you know stuff like Four on the Floor and um, Take This Heart of Mine and and uh, Killing Floor and Crying Shame. I think those songs really still, uh, you know, they really are the high octane songs they've always been, and and really continue to uh, hold their own thirty years later. Yeah, I like all the ones you mentioned, especially um, "Cry and Shame." I just I love the groove of that song. It's just a cool, you know, bluesy tune. I love it. Well, thank you. Uh, that's uh, you know, I come from a blues based background. You know, I'm in, influenced by. Guys like, uh, you know, uh, Aerosmith, Joe Perry, and uh, Pat Travers, and Robin Trower, and the old White Snake. Well, I like I liked the White Snake with uh, John Sykes, too, of course, but I used to have the older White Snake albums that came out in the late 70s, you know, and uh, uh, that spun off Deep Purple, of course. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a lot of my influence uh, showing up there uh, in, in those bluesier songs. Uh, Eric, Eric was uh, a little younger than me. His influences were, were definitely more along the Randy Rhodes, uh, George Lynch, um, uh, Van Halen type stuff. So uh, we had a really good balance between the, the two styles of our playing. Does it seem like it was 30 years ago? I mean, because to me it's like time is just flying. I'm sure you probably feel the same way. If you would have told me back then that I'd still be playing cold sweat in the year 2020, <laughs> I would say, uh, give me some of what you're smoking, my friend. <laughs> uh, it, it, uh, it really is amazing uh, that we are here uh, uh, in 2020. <laughs> and looking back at an era that uh, you know, was almost a third, of a, a third of a century ago, when you stop and think 30 years is rolling up on a third of a century, it's just unbelievable. Put, put into, into that perspective. So, but I'm glad I'm still I'm glad I'm still here and and talking to you. You know, yeah. Uh, so there you go. So time really wasn't on your side with this release because we all kind of know the changes that were looming around the corner. I mean, what are your thoughts on all that? Well, yeah, I've gone on record saying this uh, a lot of times, and unfortunately, cold sweat is is as much as it had going for it had the unfortunate. Um, 
thing of time against us. Now, this album should have came out uh, in 1988. You know, I left Keel in 88, and I uh, uh, put I put the band together right away. It went through a couple of uh, name changes and lineup changes, but 1988, you know, commercial hard rock was still riding strong. You know, Bon Jovi was still out there and uh, selling millions, and the, and the hair metal scene was still pretty healthy in 88. But this album came out in 1990, and by the time 1991 rolled around, that's when the Nirvana album hit, and you started obviously seeing a change in musical taste. So we really caught the really last tail end of the uh, uh, the commercial rock era. Um, and had this album come out two years earlier, as it should have, I, I think uh, our trajectory would have been much different. So... Let's talk about MCA Records because um, I know Ron Keel has had you know not such favorable things to say about them. I think they really did a poor job with a lot of bands that should have been bigger. Uh, a couple that come to mind, well, obviously you guys, um, Keel, uh, Lindley and Axe as well. Um, there's a lot of bands that I feel that if maybe were on a different label, promoted differently, could have been huge. What do you think? Yeah, you know, back then there were certain labels that definitely were stronger in certain areas. Um, MCA uh, certainly was not known as a rock label. Uh, we took we took a flyer with those guys. You know, when uh, we we had a couple offers on the table. The other one was with a New York based uh, label called uh, Megaforce, you know, which had some success with uh, Anthrax and Kings X and a few others. But our manager was based here. We were based here. Uh, the A&R guy at MCA that signed us, a guy named Brett Hartman, was a real passionate guy who stuck by us when we uh, were going through our uh, singer change. And we, we just felt that um, it was worth taking that that lap around the track with them. Um, but we knew going into it that they had their challenges in that field. And not only Lillian Axe, when we were signed, there was Sweet F.A., there was... Uh, Pretty Boy Floyd, there was Spread Eagle, there was Jet Boy, and I'm sure I'm missing a few. So there are quite a lot of hard rock bands uh, in addition to ours, you know, all kind of um, struggling at MCA. Because <laughs> none of those bands that I mentioned, you know, I don't even think went gold. Uh, right. Maybe Jet, maybe Jet Boy. But I, uh, anyways, um we, t- we took that gamble, and we got bit by it. So, uh, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Had we been signed to Atlantic or uh, Polygram, I think, again, we would have had a different, a different story, even in that time uh, frame. So. You know what's weird was, I want to say maybe last month, I was talking with Steve Brown from Trickster, and, and he got talking about their debut, and that was on MCA, and that did really well, and there was a lot of buzz behind that one. And but I'm just trying to say it kind of threw me for a loop because I'm always thinking of all the guys I love on MCA that didn't you know go that far with it. And then that was kind of one of the ones where I was kind of surprised. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot they were on MCA. Yeah, well, I, as uh, I said, I was forgetting a few bands, Trickster being one of them. They uh, Steelheart was another band, by the way, that was on MCA. Yep, yep. great singer. Yeah. Uh, Trickster, you know, they, they got lightning in a bottle, man. They had that big hit, you know, and uh, they, it was a minor hit, I guess, but it was certainly enough of a hit to um, elevate them out of the pack and get some traction. I think they, they got some decent touring uh, the, the years that they were there. But uh, bless them, man. Anybody, you know, anybody that had any kind of success at MCA deserves uh, uh, kudos, that's for sure. 
But then just to throw in quick, then we talked about their album that they did in 1991 and it was a totally different story. You know what I mean? So Absolutely. <laughs> so one thing, I, I, I'm a huge Keel fan and I don't know if I was ever really clear on why you left Keel. I mean, and I don't want to dredge up a bunch of crap, but I mean, <clears throat> can, can, you, can you elaborate? Yeah, I mean, I've told this story many times before, and again, we're rolling we're rolling the clock back 33 years, but we had just come off the Bon Jovi tour in 87. You know, we opened up uh, 13, 14 shows for Bon Jovi, playing the biggest sold-out arenas uh, in America, and, you know, literally three weeks later, we're playing in dingy clubs with no support from the label. It's just like we went from you know, this massive, you know, massive, massive tour to nothing. And, um, actually, uh, Gold Mountain, we were signed to Gold Mountain. We weren't signed to MCA directly. <clears throat> Gold Mountain, uh, then pulled us off the label and was in the process of, uh, doing a deal with Atlantic. And Atlantic had an A&R person there that, uh, had, uh, opinions on, what the next moves for Keel should be. And I agreed with some of them and Ron didn't. And I just, I, I really, I'm, I'm really a, a heavy rock guy. Uh, around that period of time, Ron thought it uh, would be a good move to bring in a keyboard player. And I was really against that. You know, we, Brian and I had <clears throat> really branded ourselves as one of the, uh, you know, the top line uh, guitar duo teams out there. And bringing a keyboard player, I just thought was the wrong move. And, you know, rather than be a thorn in Ron's side, I just, uh, I decided to step aside. You know, I had enough confidence in my abilities that I would land on my feet. And, you know, eventually I did. But throughout everything, I maintained my friendship with Ron and the other guys. There was never any mudslinging or backstabbing or any kind of stuff like that. It was all very cordial and we've remained friends, you know, these 35 years. That's great. So let's talk about the Keel 1987 album. That's the one I always like to go back to. I think that's the best <clears throat> Keel album. I still am blown away that that wasn't a, a mega success. But what are you? What are your thoughts on that album when you think back at about it? Well, again, we thought we had made a pretty solid record. You know, we, it was pretty slick with uh, Michael Wagner producing it. It was one of the first albums that was recorded digitally uh, back in 1987. Um, and, you know, I thought we had some, some, some really radio friendly songs, uh, on there, especially the, the two Jack Pawnee songs, which were partly responsible for us getting the, the Bon Jovi tour. Um, and I thought, you know, we, it was our fourth album, by the way, the first one being an independent album called uh, Lay Down the Law. So, you know, by album four, I thought we were, you know, kind of firing on all six, you know, we kind of kind of had it down. Um, all I can tell you is that success in the music industry or like making a record is kind of like running a relay race, Mike. It's like the band takes the first lap around the track and passes the baton on. You know, they pass the baton on to the A&R, uh, to the uh, marketing guys or the radio guys or the promotion guys or the publicity guys and they have to take their lap around the track too. And sometimes the baton gets dropped, and that's the best that's the best analogy that I can use is that in our case, the baton got dropped, and uh, I, I thought we we did take our lap around the track and uh, made a real solid record. I'm still proud of it. 
Uh, obviously, it resonates with a lot of people like yourself. But, you know, I, 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 you're talking about things that happened 33 years ago. So, yeah. you know, I've kind of, kind of moved, moved past it, you know. Uh, you talk to 100 musicians, you'll hear 100 uh, gripes from record comp- about record companies. You know, everybody's got them. So. Well, okay, so this is an interesting thought. So does it drive you crazy when people like me just want to talk about the past? <laughs> Well, it's okay, man. I know it's kind of you know part of the, part of the the overall uh, the overall thing, you know, part of the dialogue of the band. Yeah, and, and so. uh, Ron was the same way. I mean, Ron really wanted to talk about where he was going currently, and I totally get it. But I think everybody gets from a, a sales standpoint or from public interest. You know, the '80s is hot. I mean, that the cruise that you're going on is is happening because there's a nostalgia aspect, right? People love the '80s, so it's like I, I see both sides. I totally, I get it. If you said to me, Mike, do you want to talk about what you were doing 30 years ago? I mean, I, I probably yeah. wouldn't. You know what I mean? So I totally get it. But you, but you understand the other side of it. Yeah, but I'm not bitter. You know, I'm not bitter about uh, you know the lack of. Uh, you know, Keel Keel is one of those bands that a lot of people just scratch their head like, Why weren't you guys headlining? you know? Yeah. And like everybody else almost everybody else that you were playing with for all those years, you know, achieved headline status but you didn't, you know. So it's just it's one of those uh you know, one of those things that um you know, you can drive yourself nutty, you know, uh, banging your head against the, the wall about it. But it, I chose not not to dwell on that. You know, so yeah, you we, we had our we had a fair shot at it, and we did, we did okay. So. What's your favorite album by Keel that you played on? <clears throat> well, I know your favorite's the Keel album, but if you're going to press me for one, I am actually going to backtrack one album, say the Final Frontier. Final Frontier, yeah, uh, oh, that's solid. It's a solid album. Yeah, I think um, that that album to me uh, has a lot of lot of diversity on it, and uh, we were given pretty free reign to um, kind of self produce the album. Even though Gene is listed as the producer, <laughs> he wasn't really uh, uh, you know he wasn't babysitting us as much as he did on the Right to Rock. And uh, there's just something about that record, I think, uh, for me personally. Uh, that uh, makes it my favorite. <laughs> Just a combination of everything. Yeah. Hey, man, I like all of them, so there's no wrong answer. I even like the one that you're not on. I like that one a lot, but I just I I like all the Keel albums. They're, they're all great. Um, so you made you made an interesting point because I was going to ask you about this, and I, once again, don't want to you know dredge up something you've talked about a million times. But when you think about Gene Simmons, you were a you are, I believe, a Kiss fan, correct? I mean, you're doing a Kiss set. Oh yeah, man. I mean, this was the first show I saw in 1976. A 14-year-old kid out there, uh, you know, getting his mind blown by the spectacle that was Kiss in their glory days, you know. And that was that for me. That was that was my aha moment. That you know what? That's what I want to do. You know, that's that's what I want to do. I didn't know how I was going to do it when I was 14 years old, but you know, after seeing that band. Uh, that just set in motion for me what my life path was going to be. What tour was so, that? Yeah, still, they were still on the Kiss Alive album, and they may have played some, a couple songs off Destroyer. Oh, you know? okay. Because it was early in 76 when I saw them. So then 
years later, you got the the blood spitting, fire breathing demon, and here he is. He's he's all business, and he's your producer. That had to have been pretty crazy, right? It was really a mind blowing experience. And not only my relationship with Gene, but uh, don't forget, I wrote a song on East Freely's album, Trouble Walking. Yes, uh, five card relationship stuff, right? with, with with Ace, and I actually wrote songs to Peter Chris too. So. Um, kind of had a working relationship with three out of the four guys in the band. So with when you talk about the Final Frontier and, and him as a producer, I mean, do you feel like he really is a producer or is, or is he more a marketer? How did you how do you feel like having Gene Simmons associated? No, no, no he, I, he he was a good producer in every sense of the word. It's, you know, on the Right to Rock, that was our first album for a major label, first time in a major recording studio. You know, first time spending real money on a record, and he was very helpful in the arrangement process, and also getting the correct performances out of us, and you know, just kind of shaping the sound of the band. So I'm not going to take that away from him. He 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 did, you know, he played that role very well. Uh, all I'm saying is that on the second album, he allowed us to kind of, you know, be the, you know, for lack of a better word, you know, the. Uh, uh, the pilot of the ship, you know, yeah. uh, for the most part, you know, but he was still there making suggestions and, you know, do, you know, earning his keep. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, there's no dispute that the guy's got a, a excellent ear for music. I mean, and I think he's underrated as a songwriter. Uh, I mean, when you think back to songs that he's involved with, I mean, they're huge songs that will never be forgotten. Songs like I love it loud, Dr. Love, rock and roll might. I mean, these are, these are classics that will be remembered forever. So, yeah, and again, listening to the Kiss Alive album again, you know, relearning these songs just reminded me how important those songs were to me as a kid, you know, and learning, you know, Deuce and Strutter and Firehouse and uh, Got to Choose and, you know, Black Diamond. You know, these are great songs, man. It's great rock songs, great riff. Yeah, it's totally classic. So one thing, of course, every time I get ready to interview somebody, I, I refresh my memory. I do a lot of research. And you know, man, I totally forgot that you were in Wayne's World. Wayne's World! Wayne's World! And you were in the band there of Wayne's Girlfriend. What was that experience like? Oh, it's great. It was really um, an eye-opening experience for me, my first time uh, working with movie stars, you know. Um, I got... I got um, I got the job because I knew the director. The director was a gal named Penelope Spiris who directed the Keel video, uh, Rock and Roll Outlaw. So I was staying in touch with her, and uh, I read somewhere she was uh, uh, going to do Wayne's World, and I called her up, told her I'd love to be involved in any, any way, and she said, well, I need a guitar player for the film. So that's how that happened. Gr great experience. So I never realized how many things you were involved with outside of the rock and metal scene. I mean, you've scored TV shows. You wrote a children's book. What do you want to tell people about some of these outside of the rock world things that you do? Well, I think the easiest thing for people to do is go to markferrari.com because it's all there. Uh, and yes, I've had um, been lucky enough that I have a lot of facets, uh, you know, that I'm involved with. It's not just playing guitar in a rock band, you know, I, Started a business that I told the Universal. You know, I've, I've written two books. So, you know, I wrote the, the book Rockstar 101, which is a reference book. And two years ago, I had a children's book published. And uh, I've been pretty successful in, in the business world. And you know, I'm just uh, lucky that that you know, 
I feel lucky that I've, I've had these successes and, um, you know, my, my, my career path could have been a lot different had I not had it. So, but, uh, I just view it all as just, you know, great experiences, you know, the film stuff, the TV stuff, uh, um, you know, starting a business and running it and, and, you know, still being able to play rock guitar here, you know, 35 years later. It's just, uh, I'm a lucky guy. What can I tell you? I think it's great that you're still doing things like cold sweat and keel because it sounds like in theory, financially, you don't have to do them. Well, we never did it. We never did it for the money. Anyways, <laughs> right. this band. let me tell you, I never, never made any real money with either of those bands. You know, people think that just because you're, on a record uh, record label that you're you know swimming in money and you know buying uh, mansions and stuff that's simply not the case unless you know you sell a boatload of records over a long period of time so uh, I didn't get into this you know all those years ago and I started playing guitar it wasn't for the money it was for my love and passion of music um, and that remains to this day the, you know, even 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 these days with the Keel and Cold Sweat stuff you know uh, we make a we make a few bucks, but that's about it. it. These really are kind of paid vacations for us when we go play. You got any new music coming out in the future? Well, nothing, nothing new. Uh, you know, Keel may do a single. We've talked about that. I think, I think the days of doing albums are over for us. Even though we have offers to do them, it's just that it takes so much time and energy to to make a record, to write write it, record it you know, uh, do everything for it. And then unfortunately the, uh, um, the interest, you know, the, the, the financial interest isn't there anymore. And unfortunately just bands in general are just not selling product like they used to. So we may do a single though. I think that, that, that'd be the best, uh, hope for anything new from Keel. Well, that would be uh, awesome. I would, I'd be totally into it. Anything you want to say to the fans out there before we wrap up? Well, only to thank everybody for their continued support uh, for uh, this style of music. Not you know, not only for Keel personally, but for other bands of our generation. You know, it, it's uh, it, it's uh, really uh, great to know that our music still um, you know brings people joy after all these years. And I'm really grateful for the uh, support that we do get from uh, uh, the listeners out there. Mark, thanks a lot for your time. I've been a big fan for many years, and uh, I'm going to look forward to watching some of those uh, clips of uh, Cold Sweat <laughs> once the cruise is all done. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I'm sure it'll be on YouTube. Uh, people will be, like, streaming live on Facebook and YouTubing the second they get back to their cabin. So uh, <laughs> uh, I'll, be, I'll be anxious to see it, too. <laughs> all right, man. We'll have some great shows. All right. Thanks so much. Take care, Mark. What a great talk with Mark. He's just a very cool dude. Now let's talk about what's coming next week. Next week, I talk with Steve Blaze from Lillian Axe. We get some exclusive info on their upcoming album. So you know what? You don't want to miss this. So what you should do is hit subscribe. Rock on!